Today's scripture reading is John 9, 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Brent Nelson, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. Though I'm normally not here on Sunday mornings, I'm usually uh, over at the Leewood campus. So because of vacations and sicknesses, they've, uh, they've called up the third-string preacher from Leewood. So here I am. So... <clears throat> So if you've been at Christ Community for a while, then uh, you're probably familiar with the pastoral residency program. You probably know Ben Lohr, who uh, just finished his residency here at Olathe just a few months ago. Um, so I'm, I'm Ben's equivalent. I'm the resident over at, at Leewood. And uh, thanks to those of you who have been a part of this church for a while and have supported that program. It's been a really huge blessing to me and my family, and I know uh, to many others as well. Would you join me in prayer as we get started today? God, we give you praise this morning for a beautiful day, for a chance to dig into your word together. Like the blind man in our passage today, would you open our eyes, help us to see, help us to see what you have for us this morning and what you're doing in the world all around us. We welcome you into this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who's really blind in this story? You just heard the first seven verses read a few moments ago. And and who's really blind? The answer seems pretty obvious. So the the blind man is blind. Okay, true enough. But we have to look closer. We only read the first seven verses. And the, the blind man gets healed. It's a nice little miracle. But the story goes on for 34 more verses. Because this story is more than, than just about a healing miracle. It's a story about who really sees. The blind man isn't the only blind person that we're going to encounter. Because there are more ways to be blind than having no eyesight. So who's really blind? Now we're, we're in a series this summer. It's called Signs of Life. Where we've been walking through the middle of John's gospel And we've been looking at these signs that point to who Jesus is. And over the last couple of weeks, we watched as the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders who rejected him has begun to boil over. In fact, at the end of the last chapter, the religious leaders became so enraged at Jesus that they actually tried to kill him, but he slipped away. Now in John chapter 9, which is our passage today, it picks up right where that account left off. Jesus has left the temple, which was the scene of the attempted murder, and uh, now he's outside the temple and he encounters this blind man. 
And as we explore this brilliant story, I want to invite you again to ask yourself the question, who's really blind? And the flip side of that question is, who really sees? Answering those questions will help us to see what this passage has to teach us today. So let's jump in. If you're not already there, turn to John uh, chapter 9 in your Bibles. Verse 1 says this, As he passed by, Jesus that is, he, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, blindness was more common in the ancient world than it is today. Most eye diseases were incurable, so that meant that it wasn't uncommon for someone to lose their sight. But this guy, he didn't lose his sight at some point during his life, which he actually was born blind. So that that makes the miracle that Jesus is about to perform all the more remarkable because he's not restoring what was once there. He's putting something there that the man never had before. In the city of Jerusalem, at this time, would have been crowded with, um, with pilgrims, okay? And it was, it was common for people with disabilities to ask for alms outside the temple from these pilgrims that are passing by. It was one of the only ways that they could feed themselves, as there just weren't jobs that could accommodate people with disabilities, especially the disability of blindness. And so the city's crowded with people because uh, this whole section of John takes place during one of the major Jewish religious holidays. And so people have come from all around Israel uh, to participate. And that's actually why Jesus and his disciples are there as well. They're in town because of the festival. And then as they leave the temple, then they encounter this blind man. And it prompts a religious question from the disciples. For some reason, they want to have a theological discussion with Jesus about this blind man and right in front of him. Never mind that the man is blind, not deaf. And it's possible that he's listening to their conversation. Verse 2, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, the man is blind, not deaf. The disciples' lack of sensitivity in front of him makes you cringe, doesn't it? But it's a question the man probably asked himself as well. What did I do to deserve this. He carried it with him every day as he begged for food because everyone around him, everyone around him since he was born either assumed he did something to deserve it or his parents did. They make an assumption here that suffering must be because of sin. And to be sure, the Bible does talk about suffering as a potential consequence of sin, though books like Job and parts of the prophets, parts of the Psalms and Ecclesiastes they warn against making the assumption the disciples make here. They assume that if it's true that sin leads to suffering, then suffering must be the result of sin. And so they ask, well, was it him or his parents? And Jesus says, no. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, God wants to do something through this suffering man. God's work is going to be displayed in what Jesus is about to do. And what Jesus is about to do is very strange. Verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. That's gross. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. That's even more gross. And said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
This is kind of disgusting, isn't it? It's also probably embarrassing for the blind man. Imagine what he's thinking. Excuse me, why are you spitting? And what are you putting on my face? Back in John chapter 5, there's a story that actually parallels this story, and it's, I think, they're meant to contrast each other. In that story, Jesus encounters a paralyzed man, and he, tells, he just simply tells him uh, to get up and walk, and he's healed instantly. But here, he makes a blind man work his way across a city that's crowded with pilgrims, with mud caked on his eyes. You know, put yourself in the blind man's shoes. This is kind of humiliating. But, but notice the posture of the blind man here and throughout the rest of the story. He simply listens to Jesus and does what he's told. There's no objection, just simple obedience. And he comes home seeing. As you can imagine, this creates quite a stir in the community. The people in the community, they, they recognize him and they ask the question, is this really the same guy who was blind? Some of them don't trust their own eyes. No, he just looks like him. But, but he insists that he was blind and that it was Jesus who healed him. And so the community members, they bring the man before the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were religious leaders. And they were actually probably some of the same people who tried to kill Jesus at the end of the last chapter. And the, the community is aware of all the controversy around Jesus, and they decided the Pharisees should probably investigate this man's claim. Now, verse 14, it gives us a really important piece of background information. It says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. To us, this detail may seem unimportant, but to the Pharisees, this is a big deal. Because like the disciples, the the Pharisees know that God promised blessing to those who keep his law and cursing to those who break it. So they are scrupulous in keeping God's laws. And Sabbath is a really big deal. It's actually, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And we need to be clear here. There is no law that says you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath. But there are laws about not working on the Sabbath. So the question, the Pharisees, and they're good lawyers, uh, what they wrestled with was, well, what qualifies as work? If we don't want to break this law, we better define what work is. And so they came up with a whole bunch of rules to define what qualifies as work and what doesn't. The important point here is is not that Jesus Jesus did not break God's command, but he broke the Pharisees' interpretation of God's command. But the Pharisees are are so certain that their interpretation is right, and it's their certainty around their interpretation, and about Jesus himself, that we'll see gets them in trouble in this passage. Their own certainty, what they know, is actually the barrier that prevents them from accepting Jesus and his offer of life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the Pharisees need to find out whether Jesus kept their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. For some of the Pharisees, this is all they need to hear. It's probably the the act of making mud that makes them upset, because making the mud would have broken one of their rules. And to them, it's a violation of Sabbath, and it drives their conclusion about Jesus. 
But we see that even among the Pharisees, there's, there's disagreement. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they turn back to the formerly blind man, and they ask his opinion, which is really kind of remarkable. You know, here are these religious experts with all of their religious credentials. They've done all the studying and attended the right schools. They have the right degrees, years of ministry experience. And they ask the man who's been an outcast all his life, what do you think? Verse 17. So they ask again, they said it again to the blind man, what do you say about him? since he's opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. The man remembers his Bible stories about prophets like Elijah and Elisha, whom God used to bring healing to people in Israel. If Jesus can heal his eyes, then he must be a prophet like them. And notice that it's the man without the Bible degree that draws the obvious conclusion. And the religious leaders, they they don't like his answer. They've already decided that Jesus is a sinner. So they decide to investigate further. Maybe this man isn't who he claims to be. Perhaps the witness himself isn't credible. And so they go and they find his parents to confirm that he really was born blind. And it's here that the story takes a really sad turn. Listen listen to how his parents respond. His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. John explains their answer. He says, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. When John says the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders specifically. So they they said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. The parents essentially say, look, we don't want any trouble here. Okay, keep us out of this. They'll say only as much as they need to. Yes, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind. But that's it. They're afraid to draw any conclusions for fear of what might happen to them. They're they're only interested in their own self-preservation, their own status in their religious community. The parents, they've also had to live with the shame of the disciples' question at the beginning of the chapter. Who sinned, him or his parents? They've had that stigma attached to them for their, son, their entire son's life. And now, instead of rejoicing that their son can now see, they're afraid of being shamed again, of being ostracized from their community. And so they take all the weight of that shame and they put it back on their son Ask him. We don't want to be dragged into this. Now, once again, put yourself in the shoes of this this man. We don't know how much time has passed since he was healed, but it's not much. This might be the first time he's ever seen his parents, and they throw him under the bus. This is their opportunity to confess on, on the basis of their son's miraculous healing that Jesus must be the Messiah. Instead, they just throw the case back to their son. Have you ever had someone not stick up for you when they should? 
It's a really painful form of rejection. The blind man, he's received his sight, but he's not done suffering, is he? Now, failing to discredit the witness, the religious leaders turn back to the, to the man. But they're not investigating anymore. The investigation is over. The religious leaders have reached their own verdict about Jesus, in spite of the evidence. And now they try to use their position of power and the threat of expulsion from the synagogue to coerce the man into agreeing with them. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Notice their certainty again. We know this man is a sinner. Essentially, they're saying, regardless of what happened to you, just agree with us. This man is a sinner. Stop talking about him, and you can be on your way. The pressure to cave in must have been spectacular. Think of the power dynamics at play here. There are many of them, and only one of him. They're the religious experts. He's not. They have positions of authority in the community, and he's been an outcast his whole life. And here's finally his chance to be accepted. But he holds his ground. He answered, this is verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And notice the contrast between these two responses to Jesus. The religious leaders are certain that Jesus is a sinner, which, remember, is based on their own flawed understanding of the scriptures. We know he is a sinner. The man says, I don't know about all that, but I know that I was blind, and now I see. So they decide to ask him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I think they're trying to reason with him to show that if Jesus did this on the Sabbath, then he must be a sinner. It's like, hey, let's go through this again, okay? We'll prove to you that he is a sinner. Verse 27, the man answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I think this is probably sarcasm here. He's, he's fed up with these guys because of their stubborn refusal to listen, and so he kind of taunts them. Oh, I see. You want to hear the story again because you want to be his disciples, right? But now he's, starting to get, now he's really starting to get under their skin. Verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but, but as for this man, we do not even know where he comes from. Now, it's actually not true that they don't know where Jesus is from, because back in chapter 7, these same guys used the fact that they did know where Jesus was from as evidence that he couldn't be the Messiah. So this is really just meant to be an an insult. We don't even know where he's from. What, What good could come from Nazareth? He's a nobody from nowhere. Trust us, you you don't want to choose his side. But the blind man responds with the best argument of all. It's logical, it's biblically sound, and it enrages the Bible experts who are blinded by their own faulty certainty. Verse 30, he says, Why, this is an amazing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now this, is, this is a good argument, and to anyone who's open to hear it, it should be convincing. This man, Jesus, he must be from God if he's doing the things that he's doing. But rather than listen to the logic of the argument, the religious leaders react the same way that those with bruised egos so often do. They just dig in their heels and they resort to name-calling. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Remember that this entire chapter started with a question from the disciples concerning the circumstances of this man's birth. Who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? They asked it right in front of the blind man, and now the religious leaders, they hurl the same accusation at him as an insult. You were born in sin. Your blindness proves it. How dare you lecture us? And they expel him. So who's really blind? Let's not miss this. The story to this point has a man who was blind but can now see and a group of men who can see, 20-20 vision, but are completely blind to Jesus and the miracle that he just performed. So who has the real problem here? Who is seeing and who is blind? Jesus wants us to see that there is a blindness worse than not being able to see. There's a blindness, a stubbornness that prevents us from seeing who Jesus is. The disciples, they were blind. Their blindness was a faulty theology that that all suffering can be traced to specific sins. The man's parents were blind. Their blindness was fear, fear of the consequences of confessing what was plainly true. They're afraid of losing their status in their community. And the religious leaders, they're blind also. Their blindness was certainty. Certainty in their biblical interpretations. And certainty in their preconceptions about the Messiah and that Jesus didn't fit those preconceptions. So they reject Jesus and they reject this man that he healed. And they kick him out. And we can't be sure whether this is a a permanent excommunication or only a temporary measure uh, meant to pressure him to change his mind. But either way, the consequences for this man are severe. He's finally had the stigma of his blindness removed. He finally has a chance to be seen and welcomed as a whole member of society. And now he's out. And in a, a communal society like those in the Middle East, to be banned from your community, even temporarily, would be absolutely devastating. The blind man can now see, but from one perspective, he's almost worse off now than he was when he started. So far, his healing has only brought about more suffering in the form of rejection from his parents and now his community. There's a sense in which you could say that Jesus ruined this man's life. And I think that there's a sense in which he wants to ruin ours as well. 
Because following Jesus might mean scuttling our own ambitions. It might bring division and rejection from our family. Some of us have experienced that. It might mean that we have to open our eyes to the suffering that's around us and get dirty ourselves in addressing it. But the reality is that Jesus actually just wants to give us something better. And that's where the text goes next. Remember that even though this man claimed to be a disciple of Jesus back when he was being interrogated by the Pharisees, remember he hasn't even interacted with Jesus since before he received his sight. Jesus has been absent from the story since verse 7. And the man still doesn't even know what Jesus looks like. But Jesus doesn't wait to be found by him. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a title that Jesus uses for himself. He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And once again, you have to admire, you have to admire this man's faith. The whole story, he's been shamed, humiliated, and rejected. But all he wants to know is, tell me where the Son of Man is so I can believe in him. And when Jesus says, you're looking at him with the sight that he gave you, he falls down and worships. And Jesus uses the moment now to drive home an important message to his opponents. And that's where the the story ends. The, The Pharisees are nearby And Jesus says either to them or loud enough so they can hear. He says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This is a bit cryptic, but the Pharisees deduce that this is directed at them. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, I understand why the ESV chose to use the word guilt here, but it unfortunately obscures something that stands out in the original language as well as um, other English translations. The word translated guilt is the same word that's been translated sin everywhere else in this passage. Remember that the passage opened with a question about who sinned, the man or his parents. And the religious leaders claimed to know that Jesus was a sinner. And then they accused the formerly blind man of being born in sin. So the question of who is a sinner has run through this entire passage. Now let's look at that last verse in another translation. Uh, This is from the Christian Standard Bible. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The question at the beginning of the passage was who sinned. But Jesus is saying that the more important question is not who sinned, but who has sin or whose sin remains. If you could just see that you don't see, Jesus says, then you wouldn't be guilty. You wouldn't have sin. There's a blindness that's worse than not seeing. There's a blindness that does more than make life hard. It makes finding life impossible. 
It's a blindness that won't find help or love or grace. So who is really blind? That's the question that we've been asking. And the reality is that everyone in this passage is blind, except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one who sees reality as it is. In fact, the very first thing that Jesus did in this passage, all the way back in verse 1, was that he saw the blind man. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. There's a sight that begins by being seen. Everyone in this passage is blind except for Jesus. And there's only one other other person who knows it. And he's the one who gets healed. He's the one who responds in faith and worship. And others will get there. The disciples, they'll see eventually. And even some of the religious leaders will see eventually. But the one who gets his sight in this story, who truly sees who Jesus is, is the one who was first seen by Jesus. And he didn't need to do anything to get Jesus' attention. Jesus simply saw him and moved toward him in love. What we did see, though, from the blind man was faithful humility. To go where Jesus said to go, no matter how foolish he looked with mud spattered over his eyes. He didn't pretend to have all the answers, but he openly confessed what Jesus had done for him at great personal cost. And as soon as his Savior found him, he fell at his feet in worship. The story began with Jesus seeing a blind man and ended after he gained his sight but lost everything else with Jesus going out to find him. And when the man born blind sees Jesus seeing him, he worships. The good news is that Jesus sees us too. And may he open our eyes too. And may we likewise respond with faithful, humble obedience and worship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for seeing us in our pain, in our grief, in our suffering and need. Like the blind man in our passage today, we are all in need of healing and rescue. And Jesus, we confess that there are so many things that blind us to what you are doing in the world. Our fears, our stubbornness, even our certainty. Jesus, thank you for finding us, for seeking us out, even after we've run from you. You seek us, and you find us, and you welcome us home, and you've invited us to join you at your table. And we are glad to join you this morning to eat this meal that we're about to eat with you, not as guests, but as part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.